Thank you, Pat. Good morning, everyone. It's been a great morning of singing to God together so far. Um, if you brought a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 15. We will be finishing out that section today, all of the rest of chapter 15 of John. If you are new uh, with us today, welcome. We're, we're glad that you're here. Our practice when we gather together as a, a church family is most often to simply walk uh, passage by passage through large sections of the scriptures so that we can hear what God would say to us. And today we'll come to the latter part of John 15. This uh, whole series that we're doing, John 13 through 17, contains some of the most positive, encouraging, hopeful words in the entire Bible. Here's just a brief uh, reminder of some of the encouraging truths we've looked at. We've seen Jesus, God himself, stooping down to do menial tasks to show love and servanthood to his followers. And then we've been invited by him to do the same thing, to, to live the same kind of life that Jesus lived. We've heard Jesus announce that there is a way to know God, and that relationship with God comes not through moral goodness on our own parts, but through the gift of salvation given by God. We've been reassured that the words of Jesus do the very work of God. So if we'll simply pick up a Bible, and if you don't have one, there's one in the chair rack in front of you. Feel free to take that. When we pick up the Bible and we slow down long enough to read it thoughtfully, then we can know that we're not only hearing the words of God, but it's through those words that God will do his work. So that's been a great comfort to us. Jesus promised that God's spirit would be in all his followers. Brian Jerry talked about a few weeks ago and will continue next week. This means that all of God's resources are available at work in us and through us. God himself dwells with his people. So Christian, you are never alone, ever. God is always with you. And we've been given the tremendous honor of being people who can bear fruit, knowing that our lives have meaning and value because Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We're connected to him. Over and over and over again, John has encouraged us by reminding us of the gospel. The gospel is the message that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose victorious so that everyone, no matter your background, your educational level, your ethnicity, so that everyone can know and trust Jesus, enjoying eternal life, being adopted into God's family forever. Hasn't this been great news? It's just been full of wonderful news. The Gospel of John gives encouraging, life-giving words. But our passage today seems to take a really marked, different turn. Today's words, frankly, will not feel like encouragement. If you have left feeling like you've been given a warm blanket for your soul, then today you will not feel that. But that makes them no less important. The same Jesus who said encouraging things will also say some hard things to us today. The big idea in this latter passage of John 15 is that Christianity is costly. 
that it's costly to follow Jesus. Jesus will tell us today that we will encounter hostility and opposition as the people of God. So let's read in chapter 15, verse 18. Chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, this is Jesus talking, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus' purpose for us today is the same that it was when he said these hard words to his disciples. It's to say to those among us in the room today, and it's not all, but to say to those who are genuine, true followers of Christ, when things get hard, when your faith is costly, don't run. Don't fall away. Stay true. Follow me. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's pray for a moment. Father, thus far in our series, Christ Our Life, through John 13, 14, and half of chapter 15, we've left encouraged. We've left uplifted. We've left having been given words of, of life. We've been reminded that our sins through Christ are forgiven and that it's possible to, have, to be wrapped up into the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And today we come to a difficult passage. Father, I pray that people who are here today who are not followers of Christ would hear not angry words, but they would hear the convictions of Christians. And they would be drawn to consider, could, could these convictions be true? I pray, Father, for those in the room who, because of some moral action on their part, whether it's being better than a sibling or doing well in school, 
being ethical at work, or coming and sitting in an auditorium. Father, people that think they're right with you because they've done ethical things. Father, those are often the people when, when hardship comes, they turn away. So, Father, I pray today that you would speak your gospel of grace to them. And, Father, for those of us in the room who call on you as our Father, and we know we're made right with you, not because of anything good in us, but because of your gift of grace, the gift of salvation. Father, would you embolden us today to be humble and courageous, even in the context of difficulty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this passage teaches that Christians will, will at times, not may, will, at times suffer for their faith for two specific reasons. The first reason Jesus said we'll suffer for our faith is because we're not of this world. Friend, before you became a follower of Christ, you belonged to the world. Verse 19 says you were of the world. This means that you and I both were caught up in the things the world thinks is valuable. We loved worldly things. We longed for worldly things. We delighted in worldly things, things that were contrary to God's good design for us. We, just like every other people, apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, are in bed with the world and its systems that are in opposition to God. Jesus wasn't talking about the, the world as an, an earthly object, as a globe, but about the things in the world that are contrary to God's good design. But Christian, understand, the world does not own you anymore. You've undergone radical change. Sure, you might look the same on the outside, but inside, God says you're a new creation. So no longer do you belong to the world. Who do you belong to? You belong to God. You're Christ's. He is the person of your supreme delight. He is your highest joy. He is your knight in shining armor. He is your perfect father. He is your treasure. As we've been saying throughout this series, Christ is our life. So this means that no longer do our jobs own us. No longer do our degree programs own us. Our skin color doesn't own us. Our political party doesn't own us. Our parents do not own us. Who we're physically attracted to doesn't own us. Jesus chose us out of the world, so we no longer belong to the world. And that's why Jesus said the world turns on us. Christians, we will suffer for our faith because we no longer belong to the world. Maybe an illustration would help us get at the concept here. How many of you remember back to 7th and 8th grade, those precious junior high years? A few of you are still there, right? So my memories of junior high may be like yours. They were filled with picking on kids different than me. Anybody remember days like that? They were filled with days of picking on the kids that dressed funny, the ones that weren't as attractive as everybody else, 
the chubby kid who was the last to get picked at dodgeball? Do you remember teaming up with the voices of your friends to mock and scorn the kids that were different? Anybody remember that? This means yes. Quit acting all holy. In one sense, it felt good to be in the in crowd, didn't it? It felt good. We would be people that crush other people to stay in ourselves. But what felt like a freedom and a power was actually slavery. Because the group, the in crowd, actually owned us. They, they drove our behavior. We acted particular ways so that we could fit in. And the truth is that we'd become an object of scorn and hate if we chose to step out. In a sense, Christian, that's what's happened to you as you've begun following Jesus. Your willingness to move from the masses and stand with a crucified king inevitably puts you on the outside of the crowd. Your identification with Jesus calls the bullying of other people, their living for false hopes, their worldly pursuits, their infatuations with things that don't matter, are your identification with a crucified king demonstrates to everybody else that their deeds are evil, even without you saying anything. And so we should not be surprised when we're hated. We belong to him. We're his. Christian, the very life of God has entered into you. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, which means something like this. Internally, Jesus says, everything has changed. You're mine. You're going to bear fruit for me now. My life has entered your life. You were dead. Now you're alive. Sure, there's all kinds of temptations and battles you'll face, but I am with you. Your relationships with this world are going to get complex. Your true love for people without me will grow. Your efforts to serve people that don't follow Jesus will grow. You'll get a super weird family called the church. Your longings are going to change. It's not going to be easy. You will suffer because you're no longer someone who belongs to the world. But you can always draw life from me. That's good news, isn't it? Jesus is saying, Christian, you will suffer for your faith because you no longer belong to the world. But this world in its present form is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we can truly trust God and count on him. Now, a second reason Jesus said in this passage why Christians will suffer for their faith is from the non-Christian perspective, Christianity is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. The terminology Jesus uses in this passage is that they, meaning the people that don't follow Jesus, they don't know the Father, and they don't know me, Jesus. They have no understanding or experience with who God is and what the gospel truly provides. And so the message sounds like insanity. The love God has for us as his people and our grace-driven total allegiance to him baffles those without God. Have you experienced that in conversations with people you love who don't follow him? 
On certain issues, it will alienate us from them. They won't understand. And sometimes that lack of understanding will lead to hostility. Paul put this perhaps the most clearly in 1 Corinthians. Here's a few verses from chapter 1. It'll be on the screens. It says, For the word of the cross, meaning the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach crucified Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the same message of Christ crucified, risen, a God of love, a God who demands that we turn from sin and turn to him, that same message will have two dramatically different effects. For some, it will be life-giving. It will save. It will be the very wisdom and power of God. But for others, it will seem like crazy foolishness. Friends, it's always been that way. This is nothing new. From the perspective of the world, Christianity is absurd. Now why? Maybe that's an important question for us to ask today. One of the reasons it's absurd is that Christianity makes some claims that sound pretty nuts. Correct? If you've been a believer a while, have you stopped to think about what you believe would sound like to somebody who's never heard it. It's no wonder people think we're crazy. We claim a God exists that we can't see. We claim that he's in charge, that he's the Savior, that he's Lord, that life is found in him. We follow someone who was nailed to a tree and then came back from the dead. And we claim that anyone, regardless of what they've done, can be forgiven by God. And that one day, a dude will come back on a horse to claim all who are his, riding in the sky. That sounds kind of strange. And in fact, it is kind of strange. But strange doesn't mean untrue. Look at the person next to you. Friends, sometimes people struggle with Christianity because of the truth claims that it makes. And that's true. And so when we're having conversations with people who don't follow God and they look at us like we have six heads and they're all spinning around, we should be patient and kind and gentle and understanding. We should aim to understand their worldview better than they do so that we can speak the gospel in such a way that it can make sense. But other times, people will struggle with Christianity in general and you in particular, as a Christian, because the gospel itself calls them to turn from sin and to turn to God. You see, your announcement merely as a way of life calls others to consider their own way of life, does it not? 
And the proclamation of the gospel says, there is good news. Jesus came to save. But it also says there's something you need to be saved from. A life of hostility and opposition to God. No one likes to be told what to do. And so many times the opposition to Christianity is because our lives as Christians calls people to give an account for their own life. So in other words, those of you in the room who have non-believing parents, whether you're 10 or 50, your parents might be mean to you when you talk to them about your faith precisely because they find it convicting. Those of you in school, your teacher might mock you because she finds your convictions actually a better way to live than her own. Many of you will have heard of or read uh, one of the books written by Lee Strobel. They all start with the case for. It's kind of ridiculous what uh, was done to him. He came out with a couple of early, really excellent books, The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ, and then it became kind of a selling, The Case for Tennis Shoes, and The Case for Christmas, and The Case for Kung Fu. But the early books were really, really great, and uh, Lee Strobel came and spoke at one of the churches that uh, I pastored, and he said to a whole group of people, he was an atheist turned Christian as an adult. In fact, he set out investigatively to disprove his wife's new faith and ended up with having faith of his own. But he said, I knew if I acknowledged there's a God and if I acknowledge the gospel's true, then it must mean I quit doing life as someone who thinks I'm in charge. And so he rejected faith for a long time, not because its claims he believed were wrong, but because it knew it would call him to a different way of life. Friends, you will be hated for your faith because your faith calls people to live differently. It claims there's a God who's in charge, not them. So believers, we can be prepared that suffering for our faith is inevitable, that if we follow Jesus, the world will at times reject us. That Christ is our life will become even more apparent when our lives have to emerge out of a death of every day dying daily. It won't be easy. Now, I'd planned today to talk about three spheres of suffering for Christ. And my plan was to take time for us as a, as a group to think out loud together about what does suffering look like on the campus? If you're a, a Christian, for example, at ASU, your faith will be tested in particular ways. And I wanted us to think together about that. And then I was going to talk about suffering in the workplace. There are a variety of ways in which having a belief system different than what your workplace holds as dear could put you in a place of hardship at work. Some of you will have experienced that. And then I wanted to talk about suffering in the home. Many of you are first-generation Christians, and so you have lots and lots and lots of family members who do not believe in Christ. And there are distinct ways in which on the campus, in the workplace, and in the home, 
those spheres of suffering can draw out different kinds of obstacles we would face. All obstacles in which Christianity can overcome. Not meaning you'll win the conversation, but you can retain your faith even in the midst of hardship. I plan to draw those out today, but the big question looming in all of our minds today probably is not that. Probably more of what we're interested in is how the church will respond to the Supreme Court's ruling last Friday. And so I want to take a few minutes for us to think about that together. God providentially had us in this passage on faith and hardship six months ago. We, we plan messages months and months and months ahead of where we are. We're, we're charted out literally all the way until late November already. And so God in his wisdom brought us to a passage that helps us in the room who are believers understand what we should expect from life, understand how we should think about the ruling that came down on Friday. The full-scale acceptance of homosexuality and the obliteration of any distinction between male and female are the moral issues of our day. If you had a question about that before Friday, you do not now, after Friday. And church, understand, they're not the moral issues of our day because we've made them the moral issues of our day. They're the moral issues of our day because the world has made them the moral issues of our day. And so we need not feel um, judgmental or embarrassed to say what the Bible says on these topics. The Supreme Court's decision on Friday marks a new day. Some believe this ruling will lead to Christian persecution. Let me read you two quotes from two of the dissenting justices. Chief Justice Robert said, Robert said, and I quote, People of faith can take no comfort in the treatment they receive from the majority opinion today. What he's talking about is where this may lead. Now, a longer statement came from Justice Samuel Alto. In his dissent, he said this, The majority opinion will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. In the course of the majority opinion, the majority compares traditional marriage laws to laws that denied equal treatment from African Americans and women. The implications of this analogy will be exploited by those determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent. So two of the four who said, we don't believe this should go forward, are saying, we don't believe it should go forward because it will be applied as an anti-discrimination law in the days and weeks and months ahead. So friends, in light of criticism today and perhaps persecution tomorrow, how should Church on Mill respond? How should you respond? I think when I was planning this series late last year, God providentially brought us to this passage for today. And that should serve as a, as a comfort and a hope for us. So let me briefly give you three thoughts in light of this passage on how we should respond as Christians. Number one, what matters most remains unchanged. 
What matters most remains unchanged. God is who he says he is. Jesus still died and rose from the dead. The gospel is still going to go forth and be proclaimed to the entire world. God is still building his church. All who turn from sin and turn to God can be forgiven and enjoy foundation, foundational faith, salvation in Christ. None of those things have changed. Amen? Nothing any government will ever do can ever change any of those things. Nothing. So our confidence in Christ should remain absolutely rock solid. Rock solid. Some of us in the room need to stop panicking. You need to quit putting ridiculous things on Facebook. You need to stop vilifying the left. Those things will not help anyone. Others of us in the room, though, may need to consider the implications of supporting the Supreme Court's decision. There are those extremes in the room today. But all of us can rest in Christ. And as the scriptures tell us, we all need to put on love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, especially as we interact with neighbors, friends, and family who consider themselves to be homosexuals. Speaking harshly about the politics involved or shunning people with same-sex attractions will not help spread the gospel. So if that's been your habit, stop it. That's not Christian. That's not what Jesus calls us to. What matters most remains unchanged. Jesus is alive. He's still our king. God is who he says he is, and the gospel is still true. As Russell Moore wrote recently, and this will be offensive, I'll warn you ahead of time. Here's what he said. The gospel doesn't need, quote, family values to flourish. The gospel did well long before James Dobson ever was born. What matters most is rock solid because God is all-powerful. He is in charge. We can trust him regardless of what comes out of Washington, D.C., Second, a second response I believe we can have is the mission of our church family remains unchanged. Friends, our call is to be disciple makers. Our, our mission as a church is that we exist to glorify God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing on Friday has any bearing upon our freedom to do that. Do you understand that? God is pruning his church. And as it becomes more costly to be a member of Church on Mill, our light will shine brighter and our witness will grow stronger. The quality of our relationships and our joy together will be tools God uses to proclaim his kingdom. And because our mission remains unchanged, we must remember that the greatest hope for human beings is not marriage. It's Jesus Christ. Friends, God's commands in his scriptures are not arbitrary. 
He doesn't say, don't lie, merely to say, I'm in charge and you're not. He says, don't lie, because lying is harmful. And any of us who have lied know that. One lie leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, leads to we've forgotten what we originally lied about. This is not a good way to live. God's laws are not arbitrary. They are for our good. And friends, as the world gets more and more and more of what it wants, it will find the hopes behind these dreams unmet. Only Jesus can really satisfy. So we must be ready for and be willing to live our faith openly even if it becomes more hostile to do so. And maybe the most important thing I'll say in this regard today is that, friends, we must repent and ask God for his help in our marriages. We urgently need to get better at biblical, godly, Christian marriage. Husbands, it's time for you to humbly, lovingly lead like Jesus. And to do that in a way that Christian and non-Christian alike can look at that and say, there must be a power behind that greater than that man. Wives, it's time for you to faithfully, lovingly support your husband like Jesus. There's never been a more important time for our marriages to display the glory of the gospel. Never. Ironically, it's been the crummy marriages of straight people and the proliferation of a low view of sex among young straight people that brought us to this moment in our nation's history. In a sense, I think we've brought it on ourselves because we have displayed that marriage does not matter, that when it gets hard, you can leave, that when the other person does something that's painful, you can end your marriage vows. We've taken a low view of sex, not a high view. It's the height of selfishness for a man to say to a woman, I want sex with you, but I won't give you my hand in marriage. So why would we be surprised that this has ended up where it has? For the glory of God and the good of society, we've got to have more gospel modeling marriages. Tempe, Arizona is unique because people gather here temporarily to study and then they leave to go all around the globe. And so our, miss our mission to reach them with the gospel remains unchanged. And the urgency of this mission is more pressing today than ever before. Third and just briefly, how do we respond in light of Friday? And in light of this passage, friends, we have much to learn from brothers and sisters in more persecuted places. We have much to learn. There are people in the room today who have come from places that faced real persecution. Career ending, familial relationship ending, even life ending persecution. 
Historically, Christians in America were the moral majority. But we've become the weird minority. But it's in that context that the church was born and that the church experienced all of its early massive growth. Jerusalem, Rome, Corinth, Athens, Ephesus, all of these places were against Christ. All of them. I'm quite hopeful that the true church will emerge and thrive to the glory of God and the good of people. More recently, Christians in America have been rejected for our hypocrisy. So the thing we've been publicly maligned for is that we say one thing and do another, right? That's the thing we've been rejected for. Some of that was justified. Some of us have done that. We've been rejected because on Sunday we say we have a faith, but Monday through Saturday we prove we don't. So we've rightly been called on our hypocrisy. But in the coming days, we won't be rejected for that. We'll be rejected for bigotry. And friends, we've got to show a quality of love that says, even if I disagree with you, I still love you. One of the reasons Christianity spread in places where it was so hostile to be a Christian is because that's what they did. I said, Christ is my life. And even if it cost me my life, I will love you and serve you and help you. The true church in America is going to do that. And the true church in America will thrive because of it. Read Jesus' words in Matthew 5 or Peter's words in 1 Peter 4 where God tells us in no uncertain terms that hardship for our faith is good for our faith. Be kind, trust him, learn from people who have suffered greater hardships because they often know Jesus better than we do. Friends, Christianity is costly. From the non-Christian perspective, it's absolutely ridiculous. Of course, those who are without Christ will hate our views. It's going to get much, much more costly to be a Christian in America. But God is still good. And even in suffering, whatever form it may come in, God is still good. Now, perhaps you're sitting there today and you have an objection. And that objection sounds something like this. But Jesus promised me life and joy and peace. If God is really good and powerful, if Jesus is really the Savior that you make him out to be, then I wouldn't be suffering for my faith like this. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered that somewhere in the back of your mind? This objection is particularly felt in the issue of persecution. Here's what I mean. Disease, car accidents, layoffs, tornadoes, earthquakes. In some sense, we get that kind of stuff. It's easy to look at those things and say, we live in a fallen world where things don't work the way they're supposed to work. 
Stuff is busted up. People do mean things. Natural disasters happen. Heart-wrenching things like a decapitated, decapitated boss in France and vacationers slaughtered as they lie on the beach in Tunisia. These are the stuff of normal news. The world's broken. We don't have to look anywhere but in the mirror to see that life is hard, that things don't work like they should. But suffering because we're Christians, because we identify with Jesus, that feels different, does it not? If God were really good and powerful, he'd at least put a stop to that kind of suffering. But brothers and sisters, do you really hear yourself? Christian. Christian. Christians are people named after, identified, immersed in Jesus Christ. What happened to him? The people he came to love and serve killed him. Why should we think we'd be free from suffering? Why would we think I get to bear the name of Christ and receive all the blessings therein, but not receive any of the treatment that he did? How could you be so arrogant? How could we think that this wouldn't apply to us? Certainly we could say Jesus lived the most pure, loving, kind, godliest life that's ever been given. And yet, the will of the Father was that he would suffer greatly. A missionary I've read and benefited tremendously from is a guy named E. Stanley Jones. He said this, Jesus took the worst thing that could happen to him, namely the cross, so the supreme object of his suffering, and turned it into the best thing that could ever happen to humanity, namely its redemption. He didn't bear the cross, he used it. The cross was sin, and he turned it into the healing of sin. The cross was hate, and he turned it into a revelation of love. The cross was man at its worst, and Jesus turned it into God at his redemptive best. The answer then to how we deal with suffering is don't bear trouble, use it. When you face hardship for your faith, use that as an opportunity to humbly, lovingly bear that suffering well. And then just like the greatest time of Jesus' hardship, your time of greatest hardship can turn into the time that the gospel is revealed the most clearly. And if you don't want that, then you need to assess, do you really know Christ? Because a genuine Christian will be willing to suffer anything for the sake of his name. You see, what God promises us is not earthly ease, but eternal joy. Randy Alcorn, a guy many of you have heard of, prolific author, wrote this. If you are a Christian, God will deliver you from eternal suffering 
And even now he will give you joyful foretaste of living in his presence. That's his promise. Christians should expect to suffer more, not less, since they suffer under the fall, all that stuff of living in a broken world, and as followers of Christ. If your goal is to avoid suffering in this life, then following Christ will not help you. Friends, ultimately, what is God doing in suffering in the life of a Christian? Let me end with this. One more quote. John Piper said, Suffering really is meant to wean you from sin and strengthen your faith. If you are godless, then suffering magnifies sin. Have you found that in your own life? If you're either not a follower of Jesus here today, or when you face some kind of hardship, do you find that it magnifies those parts of you that are most ugly? Let me make it real simple. When someone's nasty to you, do you find the most natural thing to do is to be nasty in return? Does it shine a magnifying glass on your selfishness? on your pride, on your anger. Suffering magnifies sin because it reveals what's in our own heart. It doesn't create it. It just reveals it. But what can suffering do in the life of someone who's abiding with Christ? Piper answers that. If you are God's, then suffering in Christ's hands will change you. How? If you are really walking with Christ, then you'll find that as hardship comes and ugliness comes out of you, then you'll see that your need for the Savior is more great than you ever imagined. And you'll repent You'll confess your sin to him and to your brothers and sisters in Christ and you'll experience his grace in new ways. And that, in turn, will make you kind to people who are unkind to you. Your suffering will break down your hard-heartedness and make you soft and moldable in the hands of Christ. What more could you want?